Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial it's time for peter greenberg worldwide with america's number one travel news journalist and now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year your travel detective peter greenberg Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Beverly Hills, California. How about that for a change of pace from the Antarctic? We're coming to you from the Peninsula. Legendary hotel here in Beverly Hills. Been around for about 25 years. Five-star hotel in the most incredible location. It's great to see him again. We go back a few years. Actually, he's serving in his second term as the mayor of Beverly Hills. He's also a doctor here at Cedar sinai Julian Gold, Mr. Mayor, welcome. Peter, thank you for having me back again. It's always a pleasure. So you got reelected. Well, you know, those things happen. <laughs> Are you term limited? No, we're not. We're not. This is my eighth year in office. I've got one more. In that time, we'll see if I'm going to run again. Got it. So what does mayor of Beverly Hills mean? Well, you know, we have a five-person council, and actually in rotation, each of us takes the role of mayor. The mayor runs the meeting, runs the council meetings. The mayor, so you got the gavel. I got the gavel. And you get to set some priorities. You get to, each of the mayors has a priority that they want to see pushed in that year, um, and you become the face of the city for a year. You get to represent the city in all kinds of great places. Well, before we get to your priorities, let's talk about perception. What's the biggest surprise about Beverly Hills that people aren't expecting? We're actually a little village. Uh, the truth is that Beverly Hills is 35,000 residents. It's been 35,000 residents for decades. And during the daytime, we have a lot of people in town. We have almost a quarter of a million people in town. But it feels, as you live here, it feels very much like a little village. 
and you know everybody, and the police know you, and it's not quite Mayberry, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, that should be your branding. It's not quite Mayberry. Not quite Mayberry. How about this? It's a long way from Mayberry. Yeah, well, it is. In some ways it is, and in some ways it's not. It's very, very much a little village, and it has that sort of comfort. You know, I like describing Los Angeles, and it's going to sound pejorative, but it's not. I look at Los Angeles as 86 separate incorporated cities in desperate search of a community. Um, <laughs> And yet, you are a community. We're very much a community. And, of course, we're surrounded by Los Angeles, um, who most of the time is a good neighbor. And, but it's different. I mean, you know, we have our own police force. We have our own fire department, right. our own public services, our own set of issues, and our own city council. And so in the big uh, milieu that is milieu that is L.A., we're this little village. Do you have your own separate building codes, too? We do. I mean, you know, are there height restrictions? There are. Of course. And that, you know, you sort of touched probably intentionally on what becomes probably the most controversial thing we talk about, which is development. You know, should there be, shouldn't there be? How much should there be? Where should it be? That's probably what the most controversial issues are. And what are those height restrictions? Well, it depends where you are in the city. So, you know, for most things, it's three stories, 45 feet. But there are places where it's a little lower and places where it's a little higher. And for office buildings? Yeah. And that's about it. That's about it. So you're almost guaranteeing that population stays the same. Well, that's a housing issue. Right. You know, and uh, the truth is that we haven't seen a dramatic increase in housing in decades either. We've seen families move in and out. But most of the housing, it's a fully developed city. It's fully built out. We don't have a lot of vacant land. It's unlikely that we're going to see large uh, new apartment buildings or anything that looks like that. So the population stays the same. I'll tell you a story. My mom was a Los Angeles native, born and raised here, moved to New York at the end of World War II. She came out to visit me about 30 years ago, and she wanted me, and I didn't want her to drive, right? I mean, she didn't even drive in New York. Why would I want her to drive out here? I get it. Uh, Now, if you can drive in New York, you can drive anywhere, but that's another story. I learned to drive in New York. See, you can drive anywhere. But so she said, you know what? Just leave me at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I just want to walk around. I said, no, 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 no. You're not going to walk. She says, no, no, I'll be fine. So, okay. And uh, so I said, I'll meet you back here in about an hour or two hours. Great. I go back there two hours. She's not there. I don't know where she is. Next thing you know, I get a phone call, right, at my office. They find me and they say, oh, she's at the police department. Oh. They pulled her over for walking. <laughs> and, 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 of course, the cops who pulled her over were like 28 years old. So she started pointing out where the orange groves used to be and where this story. Very funny. I go to pick her up at the police department. She's holding court. She's lecturing all the police department guys on what this store used to be and what this school used to be. Very funny. I mean, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of history there. And actually, you started at the, the start of our history. The Beverly Hills Hotel preceded the incorporation of the city. You've lived here for about 20 years now. Oh, it's more. Uh, since 1982. Well, I've lived in Beverly Hills for, yeah, 25 years. Yeah, 25 years. years. 25 but Los years. Angeles since 82. Yeah, yeah. What's changed for the better for you, and what hasn't changed for the better for you? Well, in my case, you know, I've gotten so involved in the city. When I got here, I didn't know when we moved to Beverly Hills what Beverly Hills really was. We moved here, I think like many people do, because we knew it was a safe community and it had really good schools. And we moved here. My daughter was young. She was three years old at the time. We were anticipating the public schools. As I got involved in the community, that's really, as I've gotten involved in the community, I've seen more, I've done more. Obviously, I've gotten really involved. And that's changed. It's, it's changed the perception some. I've come to understand how a city works, you know, and all that kind of, all the stuff that goes with being on the council. So for me, it's been um, uh, an interesting educational trip. It's been very satisfying in public service. And 
much of our life has come to revolve around those sorts of things. Um, so that's been a, a huge change for me. Um, you know, you get older, you age in place, you want to, you're looking forward to being here forever. And, you know, we're talking now about, well, what happens next? My daughter's 28. She's going to get married this year. All of a sudden. Will she be married in Beverly Hills? She's not. She, you know, my daughter's her own person, and she's decided she wants to get married in a vineyard. And she's making all of those arrangements, so we're really happy for it. And her. Daddy's paying for it. Of course. Oh, of course. Of course. You got involved in Little League here. I did. I was on the Little League board. Oh, okay. Can I ask the, 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 the stupid, stereotypical question? Uh-huh. Were the uniforms Ralph Lauren? <laughs> no, we got standard okay, Little League. Okay, I'm just double-checking, no, you know. No, standard Little League uniforms. And does the stadium have a naming right problem? or? Well, we don't actually have our own stadium. Uh, believe it or not, our Little League played in the park like everybody else, and no naming rights. Okay. There was a time. Uh, no. See, I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was a time where there was some suggestion that we had a famous uh, resident, um, somebody who had been through Beverly Hills, who had been very important. And who would that be? Well, we were talking about Tommy Lasorda. Who okay, had, yeah. And, you know, hadn't actually lived here, but had been here for a bit. And we were talking about that didn't happen. Because you could have been the Beverly Hills Dodgers. Could have been. But uh, so close. Didn't happen. <laughs> Didn't happen. Forgetting the stereotypes of the movies, whether it's Beverly Hills Cop or, you know, Pretty Woman, what's the one endearing legacy that's continued that actually is accurate? Well, I, I think that this city is, you know, like your mother. This is a city you want to walk in. This is a beautiful city. But most people don't. I know. Well, you know, it's interesting. Over the summer, we've had hundreds, thousands of people walking in our city. But it's not only the streets that are pretty and the stores that are pretty, and it's not only Rodeo Drive. We've spent a lot of money and energy, for instance, redoing all of our parks that border Santa Monica Boulevard. We actually redid Santa Monica Boulevard, and that was something that we had to do. But in doing that, we we have almost two miles of parks that run the length of the city. These are parks that date back to the beginning of the city, and each one has a different character. There's a rose garden, there's a, car- there's a cactus garden, there's a lily pond, there's the fountain that's at the entry to the city. And most people drive by them and don't know them. Don't even look. And we've created walking paths through these so that people actually have the opportunity just to walk through the park. It's a two-mile walk. And they won't be pulled over for walking. <laughs> we encourage the walking. <laughs> and it's just spectacular. And so we have a very walkable city. You know, the city's only 5.7 square miles in its total. And so, so you're like Monaco. Yeah, it's easy to walk around. And I think that that's, and, and in, in these parks, we have art. We have public art. We spend a lot of money on public art. We just unveiled another piece. I think we have uh, 10 in the parks and maybe 80 total pieces of public art. So it's a, a city that's visually very pleasing. You know, we have all kinds of amenities. Obviously, if you want to stay here, the hotels are spectacular. The hotel we're in here, the peninsula, you know, uh, by far near the top of the heap, at the top of the heap, you know, but we have others equally as, as impressive. Um, and we have great restaurants. We have expensive and not so expensive. You don't have to spend a bundle here. You know, there are affordable things for, for people. Not everything here is... Give me uh, the one affordable thing in Beverly Hills. Well, you can, you can eat a Chipotle. I mean, we, you know, we have... But the parking's $100. I'm kidding! One of the things we offer is two-hour <laughs> free parking. parking. <laughs> and, you know, believe it or not, in Beverly Hills, that was a campaign issue. We had a proposition to keep two-hour free parking. And I'm glad you did. Well, so are we. So whether you're driving a Chevy or a Bentley, 
you can park for two hours for free. Just don't hit the Bentley. Don't hit the Bentley. You have a good library here. We have a spectacular library here. We win awards year over year. We loan out a million books a year. It's ex- extraordinary. We have all kinds of video, now all the archives. Wait, stuff, I want to go back. You loan out a million books a year. People actually still go to the library. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. We've automated the system now, so it's got the chips in it, so you can, you can avoid the librarian when you bring it back. <laughs> uh, you know? But it's it's. Uh, can I ask you, overdue charges two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Well, only if you take the whole library. Okay, just double check. <laughs> we actually have satellite libraries. We have a, a park, a park building with a satellite library in it. Very important for us as the library. Spent a lot it. of money on it. Big children's section. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> For those of you who know a little bit of history here, uh, the Peninsula's been around for longer than I thought. Um, I, I, I still think of it as a new hotel, uh, and yet it was around 24 years ago, and, uh, and, and is just as new today as it was when it opened, thanks to the folks at, at Peninsula. If you, if you stay at a Peninsula in, in Hong Kong, which of course is their flagship, or in Shanghai, which is, I happen to think is their most amazing hotel, we broadcast from there, we broadcast from their hotel in Paris. It's, it's really quite a remarkable experience in terms of consistency, which you don't find very often these days. I don't care what the brand is. Um, and joining me now, speaking of consistency, he's been around for, well, he's a native, um, and he's, he's actually the president of the Beverly Hills Historical Society. Yes, they have history in Beverly Hills. Don't think they don't. And my mother was a California native, so she, uh, one of the few when I was growing up that I could actually say was a California native, and she was a, a walking oral historian of, of this city. Uh, his name is Phil Savinick. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, when I say history in Beverly Hills, this goes way back, you know, before Sunset Boulevard. Absolutely, and one of the things that the Beverly Hills Historical Society is trying to do is reintroduce our history into the streets so that when the visitors come, they can hear some of our legendary stories. I mean, I remember, you know, when I first, I first came here in 71, uh, you know, and, and in those days, you know, you had Chasen's, you know, uh, he had Perino's, but that wasn't even in Beverly Hills. Um, and, you know, things were so different. Rodeo Drive was not what Rodeo Drive is now. Well, one of the stories we love to tell is Beverly Hills started out as cowgirls and Indians. The first landowner of Beverly Hills was an African Latina named Maria Rita Valdez de Villa, and she had seven daughters. So the governor of Mexico thought, oh, great, seven daughters, we'll populate that area in no time but there was nobody here it was the middle of the desert so she had one adobe out near where the beverly hills hotel is and she lived there till 1853 when she was attacked by indians the Indians rode up, and they think they were renegades and maybe poachers. This trying is to a steal Mel Brooks a movie. This is a Mel Brooks movie. Absolutely, yeah. but it tells the story of how we got the name Rodeo. All right, so the, they get a posse where West Hollywood is now, and they drive the Indians into Benedict Canyon, and there's a fierce battle. <laughs> And the Indians are defeated. Now, how would we know this? There are a lot of people that like to drive into Benedict Canyon. But There's a plaque in Benedict Canyon, right in, outside the women's club, that says this is the site of the last battle between the early Californians and the Indians. When they dug the foundation, they found the arrowheads. They found the bones. The legend was true. 
Now, the Indians used to call this area the gathering of the waters because up there near the Beverly Hills Hotel is where the waters came down from Benedict and Coldwater sure. Canyons. So that was the most fertile area in this whole area. It was So there were orange groves. No, they could grow beans. There was a tree or two. There was not a tree in Beverly Hills. This was the desert. Now, they would call that area the gathering of the waters. Now, when the Spanish came, the gathering of the waters translated into Rodeo de las Aguas. Rodeo means gathering, and that's where the word and the name came from. So it didn't come from cowboys and horses. It came from where the water was. You see, I thought Rodeo meant the gathering of the retail. Well, currently, <laughs> it's the gathering of retail. But... Uh, at one point in time, you could ride your horse up and down Rodeo. At one point in time, there was a Indianapolis Speedway that ended at Rodeo. Oh, come on. 1926 season, the biggest race of the Indianapolis season, the championship was in Beverly Hills. 70,000 people showed up, and there were 35,000 parked cars. It that... was the biggest event in Southern California. Oh, my God. And now that's called the San Diego Freeway. Nope. I'm joking. Yeah, it's but park, now park it's cars. called the South of the City. I'm talking park cars. Oh, park cars, cars yeah. yes. Come on. That's right. Well, our joke is we have and our last Indian is at the top of the electric fountain. What is he praying for? A parking space. <laughs> My mother told this story, uh, and it was a true story. She was a singer. She sang with all the big bands. And in the 40s, she was driving down Wilshire Boulevard in a convertible with Bing Crosby. And all of a sudden, they heard a sputtering engine. And all of a sudden, a plane came racing over them. It was Howard Hughes crashing on the uh, on the golf course. It would have been July 1947. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and she was the one who saw the Marine, the off-duty Marine, who ran up, jumped the fence, and pulled him from the plane. We put a little movie of that on our website, beverlyhillshistoricalsociety.org, with the newsreels of the day and the report by the police chief of what happened. And basically, he said after the plane crashed, yeah. 100,000 people came to look at the crash site. He said that was a bigger disaster than the crash itself. Well, here's the best part of the story. That Marine, you know what happened to him? Howard Hughes was so grateful to him that he put him on an annual retainer. This is 1947 money of $50,000 a year for life. I have a different story. Uh, this is what we love about uh, podcasts. Go ahead. Story I heard was Howard Hughes offered him the money, and the Marine turned him down and said, you shouldn't have to get paid for doing the right thing. But he and Hughes became pals the rest of their life and used to go fishing together. I'm telling you, that money got... <laughs> there was money. Exchange. We'll find the money. But no, his quote was, you shouldn't have to be paid for doing the right thing. And, and he pulled him out of a flaming plane. Too. Yeah. I know. Amazing. It's, now, before we run out of time, website? Website is beverlyhillshistoricalsociety.org. And the reason I bring it up is if you come to visit our city, we have places in the parks where we have QR codes that you can activate with your phone and watch these movies on the history of the city while you're standing in the exact spot where it happened. So if Charlie Chaplin shot a film right across next to the fountain, you stand next to the fountain and you can see the film that was shot there a hundred years ago. In the same way, we talk about Rodeo being about horses and horsepower rather than, and then retail, obviously. Uh, but these are really, who was Will Rogers? Why do we have a street named after him? Why do we have a park named after him? Well, he was the biggest, he was like you, biggest radio star, commentator, and he put our city on the map because his byline was Beverly Hills. He had a polo field right next to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And when he died in a plane crash in 1935, they named the bar after him. So when you go to visit the polo lounge, it's named after Will Rogers. Wow. And if you're going to visit the polo lounge, go downstairs to the coffee shop. That's the cool place at the Beverly Hills Hotel, right? Right. You know it. Phil Salvinick, the president. 
of the Beverly Hills Historical Society. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest is not only just an Emmy winner, he hangs out at a very cool place where I recommend you visit when you come here because there's always something interesting going on which will speak to your own history growing up, I guarantee you. Uh, his name is Rene Reyes, and he's the production executive at the Paley Center for Media right here in Beverly Hills. Rene, welcome. Well, it's an honor to be here, Peter. Thank you so much. I mean, I go back to that building. How many years now? In in Beverly Hills, yeah. we are uh, since 1996. So, so 22 years, exactly. just about. Oh my God. Okay. Thanks for making me feel old. <laughs> that, that concludes our segment. No. Uh, but so many different programs that are there, either from the Academy or just evenings with, with the producers who have made our life uh, growing up. Oh my gosh, absolutely. We are basically your visual history museum. We have 200,000 hours of television and radio programs spanning the history of our medium, including uh, a lot of your work, Peter. Oh, there's a reason to go. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, but when you think about it, I mean, I've probably done 20 different television shows in my career, and some of them are actually in your center. We our magazine, your CBS News reports, your PBS specials, it's all there, and uh, it can be enjoyed if you come into the Paley Center. Plus, we host programs. Uh, with great people like you who've made television on stage telling about how they made it happen. Well, I'll tell you a funny story that, that involves my is early history in television. When I was six years old, I became a regular on the Perry Como show. Well, that's fantastic. But in those days, but wait, in those days it was live from the original Zigfield Theater in New York. There was no videotape. There were kinescopes, right? But some idiot at NBC in, in some vault in New Jersey destroyed them. So I w all these years I was telling people, you know what, that's, I couldn't prove it, right? Because it was a live show. I couldn't even watch myself, right? Well, last year, th thanks to the internet, I was in London with my cousins and I was telling that story and my cousin hits a couple of buttons on his laptop and says, is this you? They found one of them. And it was from the Christmas show like in 1958. It was hysterical. So Peter Greenberg duetting with Perry Como on a, on uh, a Christmas classic. Yes, and I was one of the little, if you remember the Perry Como show at the end, he always, at the Christmas show, he had the kids around, he told the Christmas story and sang Ave Maria, and there I was. I mean, oh my God. Well, that's fantastic, and really it speaks to why, uh, why William Paley founded exactly. us, because it, just because of that, because programs were being discarded, and really it is our cultural history. And people think because of, of YouTube, even though you had that great success finding your clip, that everything's been saved. But, but it hasn't. Yeah. No, it hasn't. The reality, I, I'm still finding in people's garages the last remaining copy of something that they were just about to throw out. So that the chance to be able to save that um, is Well, my, really good, my good friend, Will, Will Schreiner, his dad was Tech Schreiner. Yeah. And Will already had, nobody knew where the, the shows were. Will found them. And I think you may even have some of them. I'm sure we But do. the thing that was interesting, I go back to Johnny Carson. Yeah. When he was doing the show in New York, and they wanted to negotiate his deal to come out to California, he made a terrible discovery. That, and the same, probably the same idiot at NBC burned, destroyed the tapes. So that's when Carson said, from now on, I own the show. Yeah. And that's why we have an archive now. Exactly. And he was so generous to us, too. We have his entire archive at the Paley Center as well that you can come in and view. You know, some, some Rare Tonight shows that were saved because of the Armed Forces uh, television network. They had it. Exactly. So we got kinescopes of those. But we have everything from 72 on as well, too. Amazing stuff. And, and there's some amazing moments on those shows that you, I mean, I would look at those shows just to see at what point in any of his shows did he ever fall off the chair laughing. <laughs> He only did it three times. Oh, my God. He only did it three times, and I, I will challenge you to tell me <laughs> the three times. 
was one of them Ellen? I know I remember him having a really good reaction to Ellen. Yeah. Uh, George Goebel being on the show one time was. Uh, what well, was George Goebel and Buddy Hackett? Oh gosh. And that was it. That was over. Um, one and Buddy Hackett told a story that you could tell today, but you couldn't tell then, and he told it anyway, <laughs> and everybody fell over. It was just amazing. Yeah. So I mean, those are the things you see at the at the Paley Center. Absolutely. Plus, you know, the most current shows that that are that are on the air right now, and and we've added a new dimension with these exhibits where we have costumes and props from anything from American Horror Story. Now to, we know that the Fonz's jackets at the Smithsonian. It is. But the Fods has been at the Paley Center uh, on stage uh, talking about uh, his his career in television. One of the great gentlemen in the business, Henry Winkler. An incredible guy, and I'm so happy for his success on Barry right now. It's just great. Okay, I'm going to give you a piece of television uh, tri trivia here. Where did Henry Winkler make his most money? His most money? Yeah. Well, oh, my gosh. Well, it wasn't, probably it not wasn't happy, happy Days. days. It was no. not. Mm -mm. People don't remember this. Henry Winkler was trying to do, ABC wanted to do a seventh season of Happy Days, and uh, I, I can tell this story now. They were paying Henry Winkler 100000 an episode, which in those days was huge money. Today it's like nothing. I mean, based on what these guys are getting today. Exactly. And he wanted 150000 for the seventh season. And ABC said, no, because if we have to pay you this, we have to pay John Ritter this on Three's Company. All their other guys would ask for the same. So ABC came up with an idea. Do the seventh season for 100000 but we're going to make you an executive producer of any show you want to develop, and we're going to give you a 22-week commitment on the air. And Incredible. he said, okay. And I was then at Paramount, and we developed the show. You know what the show was? With Henry as the executive producer? MacGyver. Amazing. And Still to this day, and it's, it's back on the air. Absolutely. So that, that's the annuity for Henry. So it's he started as the Fonz, but guess what? Yeah. It ended that way. One of the great careers. What's the biggest surprise that you've had as an exhibit there? Biggest surprise uh, to me, well, it was this American Horror Story exhibit, because for the first time, we were able to do all six seasons of the show. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I mentioned the peninsula here in Beverly Hills. It's hard for me to believe that the hotel is basically almost 25 years old, if, if not not older. Um, I remember back in 1994 when we had the uh, the Northridge earthquake and my house was destroyed and had to be bulldozed. I ran to the <laughs> to the peninsula hotel to hang out because they were open and they're still open. And uh, a and back just to put this in perspective, every year since 1993 they've been listed as a five star hotel. It's the only I think only hotel in California that can that can actually make that claim so a, a lot of uh, a lot of legacy to talk about and a lot of legacy to uphold and joining me now an old friend of mine who just happens to be the managing director Offer Nissenbaum how are you sir great it's good to be here Peter how long have you been here now it's 11 years 11 fantastic years yeah. here I mean and you've seen all the changes too I have yeah I have it's been uh, it's been a very interesting market uh, a very good market here in Beverly Hills and it's been uh, a great run you know Beverly Hills tends to be one of those locations that is resilient um, in the upturns and downturns of the economy 
economy. Um, obviously, there's a lot of new money running around, but it's still the old money here, too. Absolutely. And um, as you say, uh, no matter what, it seems like no matter what happens in the world, geopolitically or, or financially, Beverly Hills continues to be very, very strong, both from the international traveler and the domestic traveler. I remember uh, years ago, this is even before uh, this hotel was opened. Every Friday, if you got on the British Airways flight, the nonstop flight from London to L.A., British Airways flight 282, I'll never forget it. It was called the Royal Flight. That was the nickname within British Airways because that's the day that every royal from whatever country you could imagine was on the plane to come shopping in Beverly Hills. You couldn't get a seat and, 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 they, and they didn't have business class. Though. It's either first class or coach on a 747 and every seat in, in first class was the royal and the bodyguards and they're all coming where? Here. Right. It's it's still an incredible destination and a, a very, very, dem- it's a, the in demand all over the world. So you still have that effect happening to, in this day. And retail is still retail. Retail is very strong. Um, you know, there, there are several reasons why people come to Beverly Hills. Um, it's walkable. It's safe. Retail is very, very strong. Um, it, it's a comfortable place to be, and it's centralized to all the other attractions. And, of course, when they have a sale on Rodeo Drive, they reduce things to retail. That's right. <laughs> That's right. No, it, it's... Um, it's a mecca for shopping, no question about it, and it's one of the attractions of Beverly Hills. What's the one thing that, that has changed in terms of what travelers are demanding from your hotel? Because one of the things that, that, the, that I love about the peninsula is, you know, you, you've sort of like jumped ahead of the curve in terms of technology without overpowering me. You've jumped ahead of the curve in terms of basic touch points. And I'm talking about touch points on your skin, and I'll explain. Towels, they're not towels, they're bath sheets, soap, bathtubs. I mean, things that, you know, when you're in a hotel, you're essentially test driving your life. I mean, it's, it's, it's you, you want to be able to call it a home, right? Uh, and you'll see this at the Peninsula Hotels all over the world. But the one thing you guys did a couple of years ago that just blew me away, and I was like a five-year-old with this, it's your VOIP. Absolutely. Uh, Explain know. that. Well, I think because when you go to the, when you get to the room, you know, there's a phone. There's always a phone in the hotel room, but there's a button called VOIP, and you know what that means to me? Free phone calls anywhere in the world. Right? Anywhere, everywhere in the world, free phone calls, complimentary phone calls. Yeah. And again, the focus is thinking about what's best for the guest. Yeah. What's best for you when you're in the in the room? Look, I check in now with a phone list. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> We're gonna lose money. I know. For that. <laughs> no, but it makes so much sense. Well. You know, luxury, when you, t- when you look at luxury today, it's all about the ease of the stay, right? So think about the guest, free phone calls, check in and check out whenever you want. That's another thing we do here that's very unique. It's whenever you want. It's not a 24-hour. It's not, um, it, you can check in at 7 a.m. this morning and leave tomorrow at 10 o'clock at night and you only get charged for one night. Why did we do that? Because we thought about the guest. We thought about what's... Well, we live in a 24-hour world. Exactly. And with the flight patterns, especially internationally, you have late flights leaving and early flights coming in. Right. So again, you don't want to be staying in the lobby and waiting around. Look, every flight to Asia leaves LA at 11 o'clock at night. Exactly. So the value of staying in a hotel such as ours is is the fact that you don't have to haggle and, and negotiate the checkout time. You can leave when you want. Just tell us ahead of time when it is. And of course, your hotel in, in Hong Kong pioneered this. And, and I'm telling you, I spend more time in the bathtub there than anywhere else because they got the TV in the bathtub, right? And the phone in the bathtub. That's right. So again, thinking about you and what's convenient for you if the phone rings and you have to get out of your that bathtub. Oh, wait, wait. Here's the cool thing. If the phone rings and you're watching TV in the bathtub, the, the TV mutes. The TV mutes, yeah. So again, thinking about the little details that really make it comfortable for you to stay in a, in a hotel room or in the bathtub. Well, in this I'm case. so glad you were thinking of me. Oh, specifically <laughs> of you, of course. There he is. He's in the bathtub on the phone. He can't get him out of the room. He's insisting on leaving at 11 o'clock at night. Exactly. <laughs> he won't leave till he calls everybody he knows in Bangladesh. That's it. Right. 
What's the biggest surprise to you in the hotel industry that's changed? I think... And, and let, me re- give you, let me give you a hint. Yeah. I mean, everybody and their mother charging a resort fee. Yeah. I mean, ridiculous. I think that's that is ridiculous. I think the the nickeling and diming of people when they of guests when they're in the, the guest room, there are people that still charge for internet usage. There are people that still hotels that still charge for copy, uh, copying your you know make, making copies for your documents. It's unbelievable. Okay, I'm going to give you a, a, an example of a, just a small but significant touch that you do here. I checked into the hotel. I get what's the first thing we always do? Get your laptop out, right? Now I'm not crawling along the floor looking for an outlet. There's it's right on the desk. That's a nice touch but then i turned around going okay how do i sign on and i look it just says peninsula i hit the button and i'm on i don't have to come up with a password my room number my date of birth my favorite color it's like i'm here why go through that well i i think that it's important that as 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 we get more and more technology savvy that we keep things simple and that's really it's important again to think of you and what makes it quicker faster and easier for you when you get to the room rather than having all the bells and whistles that no one can figure out any hotel that gives me a thermostat that i have to have an an, an engineer come and operate it i like the old honeywell you know on off Off. the wheel right same thing with the remote control on tvs just make it simple exactly and i think that's and and once you make it simple then you can keep it elegant Yes, simple and elegant. But when technology takes precedence over common sense, you're a dead man. Or technology takes over precedence over service. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Another place you can divert from, from Rodeo Drive, is basically represented by my next guest. It's the Getty Museum. She's the Associate Director of Exhibitions, Carolyn Marsden-Smith. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You know, when I first came to Los Angeles back in 1971, my opportunity for Getty was on the Pacific Coast Highway. Indeed. And, and it was a, a much smaller facility. It and was. if you didn't make the right turn and go up the hill, you, you, didn't, you didn't make the turn. <laughs> Remember that hill? Yeah. Well, we're now two sites for our museum. There's the Pacific Palisades Museum, which is the Getty Villa, right? Um, and we also have the Getty Center, which is in Brentwood, and that's the big one. That's the big one, yes. And it divides our collection into two. Um, at the center, we cover all European art um, from uh, from right up to uh, 1900, and the villa is now dedicated to our antiquity collection. And you still take the tram there? <clears throat> you take the tram at the center, yes. I know you do. But the cool thing about the center, and I'm, and I'm not being silly about this, it's not only great art; it's a great view. It's a beautiful place to go, <clears throat> not only for the art Art, but also for the architecture and our gardens. The only thing that worries me is, you know, we've had some serious fire problems and I worry about that hill. You know, I've, I've seen the fire jump the hill on the San Diego freeway. It, uh, you mustn't worry about that. About that. The Getty is very safe in okay. terms of fire. But I know, but I'm saying another reason to get there soon. I mean, for me, I just worry about, about the topography, but I love the location. Yeah. The location is. is amazing. How often do you rotate the exhibits? Oh, well, we do um, three to four major exhibitions a year, and we have probably about 15 smaller rotating exhibits as well. I mean, I love museums that like to boast that we have so many you know, pieces in our collection that we could rotate the exhibit for the next 20 years and never run out. We have about 200,000 objects in the collection. See, you're boasting. There it is. <laughs> 
What's right now? What would be the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise? Well, I think for listeners who are already in LA, there's a last chance to see an extraordinary exhibition that we have here—a um, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see some extraordinary European art. We're doing an exhibition called *The Renaissance Nude*, and it's only open for two more weeks. So I encourage visitors to come and see extraordinary artists like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Dürer. I could go on. Now you're not really the average museum. I mean, you're really not. Oh, we like to think that we're a little bit special. Now, you, your, your history is you come from the British Museum. I do. I do. I come from London, as you can tell by my accent. No, really? <laughs> what brought you here? Oh, well, um, the Getty is an extraordinary place. It's probably the largest art organization in the world. Um, and it doesn't only have a museum. It has an extraordinary conservation institute, a, a, a research institute, which I think is probably one of the largest art libraries in the world, and a philanthropic arm. And people forget, and, and even the, 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 the movies that have come out recently, All the Money in the World, yes. I mean, I was around when he was kidnapped. I covered that story. Oh, wow. And uh, for Newsweek. And, but people still forget. And until I saw the movie, it's, it, especially trying to put it in, t- in today's terms, how much money he actually had, yes. it, was, it was almost unfathomable. Yes. And, and the philanthropic arm of the trust now uses that money to give grants across the world to help protect um, uh, uh, the world culture. And the nice thing about that fund or that uh, or your bank balance is it was started with so much that you can actually still sustain it. Indeed, yes, it's a, it's a it's a wonderful wonderful opportunity to to um, support um, art across the world. Now, are you acquiring a lot? We acquire uh, regularly, and one of the exciting things that we've just acquired actually is a rather wonderful new landscape painting by the Italian painter Giovanni Segantini. Um, it's hot of the press. It was only announced yesterday. Um, it's a beautiful landscape of an alpine scene in Switzerland and it will be presented circa, circa what year? Um, this is a 19th century painting um, and it will be presented in our Impressionist Gallery from February so I encourage your listeners to come and see it. Well let's talk about the Impressionist Gallery. Who do you, I mean we're talking Monet? Monet, Manet um, uh, uh, Van Gogh uh, Pronounced correctly go, by could, the way. Pronounced correctly We could go on. Yes, an extraordinary popular gallery full of wonderful iconic paintings. And watercolors? Uh, yes, our watercolor collection um, is somewhat smaller, and because of the sensitivity of the material, it will rotate. So visitors won't always see the same watercolors when they come to the museum. They will see a, ro- uh, a, a rotating uh, set of displays. Humidity is a problem. Um, light levels are a really? particular problem for watercolors. Yes, so we need to be very careful about their exposure to light. Otherwise, um, if we left them out too long, we would lose them. All right, so when you are going to exhibit them, how do you control the light? Uh, we have special light lighting in our galleries, which is dimmable, so we can get it to a particular uh, level of light, which is not um, dangerous to the fugitive um, pigments in the watercolors. And your favorite piece? Well, my favorite piece, I would have said it was our most recent acquisition because I'm always very excited when the Getty buys something new. But I think that my favorite piece and probably a lot of other people's favorite pieces is Van Gogh Iris's, which is an iconic Which, by the way, when it was sold, sold for how much? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't tell you, but I know it it broke a record at the time. By the Um, way, which would not be a record today. No, probably not. No, no. But it is extraordinarily vibrant painting, very textual. And uh, when you see it in reproduction, it really doesn't do it justice to see it up close and personal. You can almost feel the brushstrokes of Van Gogh as he he was making the painting. I got to ask this question because I want to put things in proper perspective. So many Americans, they'll list, you know, their number one destination in the world to go is France. Why? Because they're all failed art history majors. (laughs) 
and they study the painting in school. So they go over and stand in line for eight hours at the Louvre and then come back outside and go, it's so small, uh-huh. right? And we're talking, of course, about the Mona Lisa. Irises, how big is it? Oh, uh, it's larger than the Mona Lisa. Well, anything's larger than the Mona Lisa. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's, it's fairly substantial. I mean, I, I couldn't put a number on it, but I mean, it's not a small work. Um, uh, and it has power on the wall, that's for sure. And obviously, you display it in such a way that it's the only thing on the wall. Well, um, it certainly has a lot of space for our visitors around it because it's a very popular piece. <laughs> exactly. What's the secret piece that you have there that nobody knows about? When I say, when they, but it's there. It's not hidden. It's not in the storage units. But it's one that that you want me to, that people should see. Gosh, that's a very difficult question. Um, I mean, look, I think every, one every of the, piece of art tells a story. I think so. one of the. I think I would t- speak to probably um, a part of our collection that visitors don't really recognize, which is that we have an extraordinarily large collection of photographs. Photographs right up to see, the no, present I did, day. I, I did not know that. Yeah. And um, we've been collecting photographs quite some time and it is the only part of our collection that does go up to the present day and we've just recently done an exhibition on fashion photography which is something unexpected for the Getty. Mostly black and white? Um, No black and white and colour. And colour. Yes. So that's a sort of hidden part of the collection that I think people when they arrive at the Getty are really rather excited about and it's an unexpected pleasure. Well, it's eclectic. Indeed. It really Indeed. is. You're not yes. expecting it. Yeah, exactly. And the fashion photographer, would we, would, is it Richard Avedon? Who is it? All those people, all the big names, um, right from the early 20th century up until 2011. Um, and interestingly, it has been so successful, it is now traveling to Houston. Ah, you're mm-hmm. traveling the exhibit. Yes, exactly. Okay, now bottom line is, admission is? Admission is delightfully free. Parking? But it's the parking you got to worry about. Parking, <laughs> parking is, I think, $15, um, but it is cheaper after 3 p.m. It's $10, but generally the museum is free to all. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest, I've known for many, many years. We used to both write for uh, Los Angeles Magazine back in the day, uh, but she's gone on to do many other things since then, including the author of The Battle for Beverly Hills, Nancy Clare. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Was there really a battle for Beverly Hills? Uh, there was. They, and actually, there was a slight armed battle uh, at one point over water. Well, that goes back to uh, the John Huston movie. Yeah. Well, it's a story that's reminiscent of Chinatown, yeah. but uh, the city of Los Angeles ran a water main across the top of Coldwater Canyon before Beverly Hills was incorporated. After it was incorporated, they wanted some of that water. Wow. And? And uh, Arthur Pillsbury and other members of uh, the city government went up and had an armed standoff with William Mulholland's guys from the Department of Water and Power, and it ended up in court, and Los Angeles won. Which meant? Which meant that by 1923, the city was running out of water, and the owners of the city, the developers of the city, the Rodeo Land and Water Company, decided that the best course of action would be to annex to Los Angeles, and that's the battle. When uh, the first uh, celebrity interaction in politics, Mary Pickford and her, what I call the Beverly Hills Eight, campaigned against the annexation. And of course, a city without water ceases to exist. 
That's true. They were taking a leap of faith. Uh, there was water. And one of the unique things about Beverly Hills was that there was water. There was groundwater. There were artesian springs. Uh, hey, there was oil. There was oil, but actually there was more water than there was oil. The yeah. uh, Rodeo Land and Water Company started out as amalgamated oil. They <laughs> drilled for oil and they kept hitting water. And they decided, uh, okay, water, let's well, build a let's town. Water. <laughs> and here we are today. Absolutely, here we are today. It's uh, 1923, there were less than 1,000 people. Uh, it was a hotly contested battle, um, very, very expensive for its time, $75,000 for the uh, campaign, which is millions in today's dollars. And uh, the vote was... 700 people voted, and it was 500-ish to 300-ish. It was uh, wow. close. Now, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking to the mayor, Julian Gold. You know, Los Angeles has 4 million residents. Yes. Beverly Hills has 37,000. On a good day. On a good day. So how you know, is, this an, is this an armed enclave? or? No, it's not an armed enclave. I think from the very beginning when Burton Green and uh, Canfield, who was an early investor in Rodeo Land and Water, established the city, they never established it with the idea of being a big city that was built up. It was always going to be a garden city, curvilinear streets uh, without the traditional grid, and uh, each street is lined with a different type of tree. Uh, the mayor spoke about the park, the greensward that goes along uh, uh, what we call Big Santa Monica. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to Little Santa Monica, As opposed to Little Santa Monica, which the Peninsula Hotel is on, just to drive people crazy. But I will tell you this. Whenever I drive in Beverly Hills, by, by just by definition, I drive slower. Yes. Because you're actually looking around and you're meandering. You're not driving always in a straight line. And that was part of the purpose. So I, I think that retaining the city, retaining its cityhood, it stayed pretty much as the founders of it intended, I am pretty certain uh, that had Los Angeles, had it been annexed to Los Angeles, that would have changed. Hollywood had been an independent city between 1903 and 1910. It was a teetotaler city founded by <laughs> Christians. And well, we can all see what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. The needle moved the other way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but here, there's been a consistency. I think there's been a consistency and a commitment to a livable city, a commitment to a city that is, uh, as the mayor explained, is a walking city, is a city where people have a lot of room. It's also a city that uses a lot of water because they like their It all green. comes back to water. Right. I think everything in Southern California comes back to water, and, and certainly the this attempted uh, annexation was all about water. It was, you know... It, there was a bomb, you know, or they thought it was a bomb. Uh, and there were other other shenanigans that took place, sulfurous water left on the doorsteps of, of uh, the citizens of Beverly Hills the day before the vote, saying if, if you don't vote, if you don't vote for the annexation, this is what your water's going to taste like. And, you know, it was, but I think the other part of Beverly Hills is they are, the city and the police and all of that are protective of their citizens. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure. Oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My mother, God rest his soul. 
In a world of outrageous demands and unrealistic expectations, my next guest has probably the most demanding job at the hotel. He's the concierge here at the Peninsula in Beverly Hills. Uh, Frank Barr, thank you for coming by. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Peter. I mean, everybody, you know, people are not always understanding what concierges do, and that's another story we can discuss. Sure. Uh, you know, you're doing more than just getting theater tickets and, and finding, uh, you know, collar ties or collar sure. stays. But in Beverly Hills, they're asking for pretty outrageous things um, and at pretty outrageous hours. It can happen, uh, definitely. Uh, it certainly brings uh, it brings us to raise our game and uh, be really ready for to anticipate anything. But the cool thing about concierges, especially the Clay Door guys, is you should also you should almost want to change your name to I know a guy. <laughs> exactly, right? exactly. Because because that's what concierges do. I, I, I we can handle this. I know a guy who knows a guy. Sure. Because usually it's at 2 o'clock in the morning and they, and they want a plane out in an hour to go, to, they want to go somewhere. And you got to get them a plane. Absolutely. You know, we've had some last minute requests for transportation to some crazy places, especially when Burning Man is happening. That <laughs> certainly brings, you know, and, that and, time. And of they year. want a helicopter there. A helicopter, a plane, to a helicopter, to a car, you know, and just on a moment's notice. So it definitely, you know, we, we got to know a guy or a couple of guys a to couple make of that guys. happen. And that's your network. It's not just the hotel, it's people you know all around the country and all around the world. It really is. And, you know, when you, have a, a network like Lake Clay Door. Uh, it really does open doors in a lot of ways um, and allows us, uh, basically it gives us opportunities to find ways to make things happen. Concierges at the best hotels almost operate as independent entities because, you know, there's only so much the front desk is going to do for you. There's only so much that housekeeping is going to do for you. But when the you know what hits the fan, it's it's you. Absolutely. And, you know, what's great is that at the Peninsula of Beverly Hills, we um, are very fortunate that we have guests that really do uh, develop relationships with the concierge and uh, uh, cultivate that over many years. We have so many return guests here. And so we really get to know what their preferences are, what they are looking for. We really get to anticipate their needs which uh, is so valuable. Okay, can I say something really silly here? Sure. One of your sort of trademark items here for your returning guests is when they check into the room, there's a pillowcase on the bed yes. <laughs> with their initials on them, exactly. embroidered. Definitely, absolutely. It's a great welcome. Okay, here's the question. How many of them steal the pillowcase? <laughs> the truth, Frank. Sometimes at the ah, end of their stay. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's a nice memento of the hotel. So, so. basically it walks. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, it can be known to go missing in the laundry department. <laughs> I understand. No, 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 Frank, it never gets to the laundry there department. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, those are the things that, you know, that, that name recognition or, or just tailoring to specific needs that has resonance because people then will come back. Absolutely. You know, and as far as our guests go, you know, understanding what their need, their needs are to pre basically personalize their stay to really understand you know what they may need for this particular visit is really important when they're visiting with their families versus when they're just coming alone on business um, to have sort of an understanding um, and really listening to what their needs are prior to their arrival is 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 really helpful I mean you've got to know more about than just child warehousing you have to know about child care you do you do. Yeah, and Absolutely. you have to have some pretty amazing babysitters on, on, on the Rolodex. We work with a couple of great companies that um, provide excellent sitters. What's in the last, let's say, two years, the most unusual request you've ever gotten? You know, there are, you know, we are always I don't say of... there are no unusual requests. You know, <laughs> I'm not buying that one, Frank. No, you don't have to buy that. Yeah. Uh, no, we definitely have um, requests, you know, that come out of left field sometimes. I will say that we had 
kind of a great request um, within the past uh, year. We had a family that was visiting from overseas, and uh, like many kids, the son was kind of obsessed with Marvel Comics, and it was his birthday, and that was the purpose of this day. And so basically, we set up for uh, characters from Marvel Comics, the Black Panther, Spider-Man, all of these different, to pop up during the course of the stay, uh, to show up if they're in the suite or up at the pool. And it was so much fun over the course of a week. And ultimately, it, it led to him going on an adventure with them into Los Angeles, where they created these mock fights, and he found clues to solve a crime. It was really kind of incredible. You got really creative. It was fun. <laughs> and ask the family if they want to adopt me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's... At the, at the end of the day, I mean, that's an experience that they couldn't get anywhere else. No, and it was so much fun to kind of go along for the ride with them on that. It was fantastic. And you dressed up as which character? Uh, you know, I have a couple in mind, but I actually didn't quite make the cut. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. I always me. like to talk let's to fly, my next guest only because away. he's probably next to the general manager, the most important guy at the hotel, because people, they eat here. And, you know, the hotel food has, has had such a transformation over the last 25 years. It's no longer an afterthought. It's no longer you're eating here because that's the only place you can go. Uh, realistically, of course, no matter where you're going to stay in the world, let's say you're going to stay three nights someplace, chances are one of those nights will be at the hotel and it better be good. Well, living in the in the global village now, you can source everything. Everything can be flown in. A tuna caught in, in Japan is, is going to be here the next day or a salmon up in Canada is going to be here the next day or maybe even the same day. So uh, what, what it gives chefs, of course, is, is options to be even more creative and order more things on their menu that they can actually deliver. Joining me now, the executive chef of the peninsula here, uh, David Codney. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having us. A Cleveland native. Cleveland born. I know. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Go Bucks. <laughs> Go Bucks. Well, that's another story. That's a whole other that's story. That's a whole other story. Uh, plus, you st you were down at the at the Ritz-Carlton Naples. Correct. With with a legendary hotelier there, Ed Steros. Yeah, he's amazing. Who's still there? Great mentor, great, great man. But now you're here... How long? I've uh, been here a little over six years now. Right. It's funny to say that. I know. And this hotel, I mean, I, I'm dating myself, but I realize how the hotel is is older than I thought because I remember when it was a brand new hotel, but it still is new. It is very new. You know? It's a classic. I know. I mean, right after the earthquake in 1994, during which time I lost my house, I was living in Sherman Oaks then, I moved in here for a while because you were open <laughs> and well, my house was bulldozed. And now you've come full circle. I'm back again. I'm back again. But let's talk about what I talked about when I first introduced you, and that is, the sourcing that's changed mm -hmm. because now you no chef has an excuse no, right? I no. Mean, you can get anything you need you can get anything anywhere so what would you say is you know the wow dish on your on your menu that you couldn't have done 10 years ago well, I mean, look, I don't know if there's one wow dish. I think yeah. it's a whole experience. Um, you know, we have Dover Soul that comes in. Uh, we get it in here three, four times a week. Um, you know, that's unique. Um, we're one of the few that and actually gets... that's not from gets... Dover, Delaware. That's from Dover, Correct, England, yeah. correct. And so, you know, a lot of people sell Dover, but they're selling, the, you know, the Seattle version, the Washington version, because uh, there is that side to it. But true Dover is a longer... Um, grown species that, that takes longer to develop. So the muscles, you know, much more fatty. Um, it, it's, it's a unique product. Um, and being in California, we really are blessed to have the best of the best everywhere. I mean, we're the, we're the grower of most of the United States. And you're not doing farm stuff. No. See, that's the other thing. I mean, anytime I'm on an airplane and they're offering salmon, I know where it's coming from. Right. Right. It's, it's farm raised and it's not, it's not wild. Right. Well, you know, we try and keep up with as much wild as we possibly can. Uh, there are some great farms that we've purchased from because we need to, um, you know, 
we try and just get in, you know, wild salmon from California when we can, uh, you know, Northern California when we can, you know, East Coast. Um, it just depends on where the product's running and where it's best. Um, but you still need to supplement with some farm stuff. So uh, there are great sustainable farms out there. We want to make sure we're getting the best of the best. Uh, we want to make sure that we're sustainable in everything that we practice and everything we buy. And um, you have to actually consciously make a decision. David, in terms of sourcing, um, I'm not looking at Los Angeles as a great growing nor- uh, location, mm-hmm. but within 90 miles here, you do. Oh, within, within an hour, you have some of the best of the best. Um, you know, we, we partner with. White, oh, hi is great. Uh, Weiser Farms up in Tehachapi is amazing. Um, you know, Bakersfield's right down the road. I mean, everything is is truly right down okay, the road. Okay, I got to ask, what are you getting from Bakersfield? Uh, well, we get some peppers from Bakersfield, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> the tomatoes, the eggplants are going off. Um, Kenter Canyon's farm has uh, some beautiful greens that we get out. Um, See, Ohio, I know about tomatoes. Yeah, ohio has got tomatoes. Yeah. 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 So, and everyone pops up all over the place. I mean, we have amazing farmers markets, Hollywood farmers markets, Santa Monica's farmers market we go down to. So, we're all over the board. So, you go shopping out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's a good job to go and, and spend money and buy produce. It's, uh, right. it's, a, it's a dream. So where's, where's David today? He's buying produce. Yeah, exactly. It. It's a good excuse. It, it works for me. <laughs> All right, so I always have to ask this question, so you're no, you're no exception to this. What's the, in, in six years that you've been here, mm. what's the one item that you put on your menu that you thought, this is going to be the home run, and it tanked? Oh, gosh. And, wait, wait. And, and I'll, give you, I'll give you a help here. What's the one item you thought, nobody's going to order this? Why are we even putting it on the menu? And everybody orders it. Yeah, there's, um, I think everything I really strongly believe is going to be a home run ends up tanking and everything <laughs> now I, there's a legacy that's it that's it um you know i found that the more i believe in something the more i want something and try really hard the more it fails okay tell me the, your biggest failure uh i did a oh, i did the salmon dish once where i wanted to make, i love how you say it. i did the salmon dish once <laughs> it was it was a couple days it was brutal um i tried to recreate uh chowder without putting bacon so we cured the belly of the salmon and we did all this cute cheeky things and it just did not translate so basically it got 86 yeah it was it was quick it was brutal i I walked out to a couple guests they didn't even touch it and you know i was trying to be um I was trying to be someone I wasn't. Okay. And the one item you put on the menu that said, really? And it went nuts. Uh, well, that's our charred Caesar salad, unfortunately. Um, you know, I say that. I, I must say, I've had it here before. I will have it here again today. It's the best. It's it's funny. I put it on as a, as a um, almost a joke, tongue-in-cheek. Um, you know, growing up, my mom used to make Brussels sprouts. I hated them um, and then kind of fell in love. So I just put it in a Caesar, um, made the Caesar dressing with it, and it was uh, it's taken off. So it's one of our number one sellers. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 
63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Wondery Plus.